Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Shock and Awe, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in March 2019. After you listen to the stories, stick around to listen to our special guest, Taylor Kramer, creator and host of the Cold Shower Podcast, who joins us in studio to speak about the theme for our next show. In our first story, Taylor Kramer tries to shock his mom by running away when he's 10 years old. I had been neglected. Now, I'm not talking like in a call child support services type of way. I'm talking about in a I'm a 10-year-old and I need a little bit more attention type of way. So the last few months, things had been trending in a uh, specific direction. And the person that was responsible was the person that brought me into the world. Um, and up until recently, had seemed to really love me. Things were so good before my brothers showed up, my younger brothers. Uh, the last few months had been coming to a head, and uh, I was raising my young voice as high as I could, screaming at my mother about how she no longer cared for me, her second oldest. Any explanation she could muster was drowned out by my preteen voice. I was going toe-to-toe -to -toe with my mother, defending my own painful existence. Amidst the neglect, it had become pretty obvious that my younger brothers were just a replacement. I wasn't needed anymore. So at this point in the verbal sparring, I could feel the tears coming. Not now. Tears will give away your position of strength and independence. If she sees you crying, then she sees your vulnerability. So through sheer will, I reversed the course of the tears. The truth I was arriving at is that I was sad. But I thought sadness wasn't an emotion that a strong 10-year-old boy should feel, especially when he had plans of striking out on his own. So as my mother walked away, not giving me another word, sadness was replaced by anger. Now this was an emotion that I could use. So I kept getting more angry and more angry, telling myself things like, she doesn't love you anymore. She prefers your brothers. Now, then the kitchen gave way to my bedroom, and I knew that my mother was working on the computer. So I tried to calculate in my head how much time I had to make a clean escape. It, not that it mattered anyway, I was invisible. Um, but regardless, this was the early 2000s, so commence the internet timing device. It would take five to 10 minutes for the dial-up to connect, five to 10 minutes for her emails to load, and then she would write her articles for another 20 to 30 minutes. So I knew I had a little bit of time to make a clean escape, but I couldn't miss any of the details. So going to live alone in the wilderness, obviously that takes a lot of preparation. You need food. I would need at least enough for a week until I could forage and hunt on my own. Weapons, I had my jackknife. I could use that to carve spears or bows and arrows. And then I also had to have fire, obviously. And there was a half-used bick around here somewhere. I knew that. Or I could just rub sticks together if it got bad enough. And then there was shelter. But I knew the tent that the family had was way too bulky, so I would just build a shelter when I settled in for the night. So I gathered all my supplies, and I wrapped them in a bandana, and then tied it to the end of a stick. <laughs> so I had quite the collection of sticks that I had, had built up for 
future uh, walking stick purposes, spears or whatever else a 10-year-old boy uses sticks for. So this way I could carry it over my shoulder. I was clearly a victim of too many old-timey shows where hobos hop from train car to train car with a stick over their shoulder. Uh, so far the planning process was going very, very well. Despite my vision blurring from anger and the occasional tear that would sneak out, I hadn't missed any of the necessities. This was it. I was ready to run away and start a life of my own. So then when I exited my bedroom, anger turned to excitement. I was really doing this. Tom and Huck 2.0. Now, I was Tom, but I was sure that I would meet Huck. I couldn't be the only forgotten child on this planet. And I was really excited to meet those people, and then we could then decide whether we were going to live in the wilderness or venture to the big city and see what opportunities awaited us there. But before I left, I had to do one more thing. I had to leave a note. Now this was not out of sincerity for my mother, but I wanted to outline exactly why I was leaving. I wanted her to feel some of the pain that I had felt. So here's how the letter went. Dear Mom, I can't do this anymore. The way you've treated me has made me realize I'm better off alone. Your preference for any of my brothers has become too obvious and too painful. I can't tell you where I'm going and do not come looking for me. Maybe I will see you again someday, but I doubt it. <laughs> Upon finishing the note, I snuck upstairs and left it on the kitchen table. I almost wished I could stick around to see her reaction to reading it. She would probably regret this day for the rest of her life. I had plotted, packed, and left a devastating note all in under 15 minutes. I would have plenty of time to cover some ground before the search party would come looking for me. So then I left through the back door and headed towards the nearest woods. I knew that I had to get some trees overhead in case the search helicopters were out. I kind of doubted that my mom would call a search party, but my dad might. He was still pretty cool. I would actually miss him. But right then I remembered he was married to my mom he was guilty by association. See you later, Dad. As I was walking, a quick chill came over me. It was a little colder than I had expected. When I'd packed, I failed to realize that the climate inside would differ from the climate outside. So at the time, a t-shirt and jeans uh, seemed sufficient. Uh, but anyway, I, I knew that in a couple of hours, I would have a roaring fire in front of me, might even have some wild game roasting over it, so I wasn't too concerned. I had uh, seen some rabbits and squirrels around the house before. The yard, we lived in a countryside alongside a couple of other houses and a big field in the back. So I imagined the deeper in the wilderness I got, the easier it would be to catch squirrels and rabbits. No problem. So the walking continued for what seemed like forever. My pace was going much slower due to the constant peering over my shoulder. I was half expecting to see my mother's outline searching for me, but it was almost like that if I knew I saw her looking, that I might doubt my decision to run away, that maybe that would remind me that there was something worth staying home for. But there was no calls of my name, no police sirens, nothing. So I thought to myself, good. The, the less I have to worry about being found, the sooner I can start this life. So I kept walking. And then my stomach growled. What the hell? You're hungry already? I thought to myself. So I decided to sit down behind this large rock and have a snack, while keeping in mind that I was supposed to ration my food. 
The Slim Jims I had packed tasted so good, but I had to pair them with something a little sweeter, so I opened up the box of Oreos. Then I remembered again I have to save some and ration my food, but that thought quickly changed as I remembered my survival capabilities and that catching animals would be no problem. So I kept eating. There I sat, decimating my food supply, while wondering if I had miscalculated how much I needed for a week. Was a package of jerky and a box of Oreos not enough? I would have to hunt and forage sooner than I thought. As I finished the last of my food, the wind was still giving me quite a chill. So a light bulb went off. In came the thought of something that could be even better than running away. I wouldn't have to catch my own food, I wouldn't have to make a shelter, and I wouldn't have to start a new life. What if I returned home and basked in the glory that surely awaited me? How sweet it would be to walk back into the house, past the police and the news cameras, to be scooped up by my parents, completely stricken with grief, promising themselves to never treat me unfairly again. They might even throw a coming home party for me. This was all sounding pretty good. I mean, the downside is I would have to see my mom again, but I knew I could just run away if I needed to. So yeah, it had been decided. I was going to head back and use my running away as a springboard to all kinds of spoils from a family that thought they'd never see me again. So I retied the bandana to the stick and took mental note of how great a snack stop that this rock served as in case I needed it in the future. And then I peeked around that rock, running through the return home scenario one more time. Hmm, hadn't really made it quite as far as I thought. I realized I was barely on the edge of my family's property. I could still see the back door that I had exited from. But I shook off the doubt of my new plan and decided how far I made it isn't as important as how long I was gone. My parents would still be absolutely devastated. They would never have to know that my adventure ended 200 yards from the back door. So this comforting thought propelled me as I set off to the place I had loathed so long ago. The closer I got to the house, the more I realized there weren't any helicopters, police sirens, or news cameras camped outside. I figured I'd at least hear the tormented wails of my mother as she processed the idea of losing her secondborn. Her pain should have, at the very least, matched all the pain I had felt from being passed over. I opened the door, still no commotion, so I peeked inside. The note I had left was still in about the same position. So here I thought my mother must have looked at it and instead was in her bedroom grieving the loss of her son in silence. This was going to be good. I would confront her and she would have to fess up to her motherly mistakes by looking me in the eye and convince me that I was more important than my diaper-wearing siblings. So I crept down the hallway, still not wanting to give away my return, and I saw my mother's back as she was facing away from me. Her face was lit by the glow of the desktop. Mom? Yes? Do you know where I was? No? Uh, how long ago did we have our argument in the kitchen? Hmm, maybe a half hour. Are you shitting me? I said to myself. You were only gone 20 minutes. She didn't read the note, would never understand how badly she neglected you. There would be no news coverage and no coming home party. My disappointment was manifesting in tears. It had become clear. All the attention I was craving would most likely go unfulfilled.
I wasn't feeling quite so brave anymore, and I realized I couldn't survive in this world without my mom. Somehow, in those 20 minutes, and certainly in the years since, I realized that I hadn't given my mom the credit that she deserved. I had overreacted to what I thought were signs of neglect, with her just being so damn tired taking care of a 15, a 10, a 5, and a 2-year-old with another on the way. It was then that I said, hey mom, can I have a hug? Without words, she swung around and wrapped up my little 10-year-old body in the best hug a son could ask for. Satisfied, I left the room, grabbed the note that nearly changed my mother's life, and placed it in the garbage. I was ready to start anew with the family I nearly left behind. Thank you. In the next story, Connor Drexler's proximity to a terrorist attack in Europe has him questioning how he perceives the world. It's very strange to hear these 10 words when you wake up. Connor, there's been an attack in Paris. 60 people are dead. The person who whispered these words to me was my travel companion. and We were both studying abroad in England at the time. At that moment, we were taking a weekend trip to Geneva, Switzerland, and we were staying in this large Airbnb home outside the city. And I, I distinctly remember her shaking me awake and telling me these words. And it kind of felt like a plummet to earth. I mean, Paris at that moment was about the distance from Traverse City to Detroit, from where we are right now. And the next day, we were planning on traveling to Chamonix and Annecy, which are these French Alpine towns. And there's a bunch of tourism that happens there. And I thought that we were probably OK, but I also didn't really understand how safe we might be, because I'd never been in a situation like this before. And so I tried to think of something to do. And I felt compelled to do something, but I couldn't quite decide what that was. My friend's increasing anxiety didn't help things. And to make matters worse, her father was sending her all these texts to her phone saying that she should fly back to England immediately. And so what she says to me is that Connor and my dad thinks that we should fly back, and I think you should join me, and I'm going to leave as soon as possible. And I thought it was a, a bad idea because it was so close to a terrorist attack. And I thought about the situation. I thought about the fact that we were probably okay, but I also knew that I was in Paris only a week before that, and I didn't know if there was going to be a successive attack happening in the city I was in right now. I knew that we were okay at the moment, and she ended up leaving me early that morning, and I lay awake the rest of that night, and I was feeling dreadful. I was feeling alone, and I was unsure of whether I was even going to go through, through with my plans to go to Chamonix the next day. And eventually I packed my bags and I went to the tour bus. And I think it was only because doing nothing at that moment felt worse than doing something, even if it felt a bit risky. And so I'm sitting on the bus and I'm thinking about all of the times I've been in similar situations like this before. And I think the best example that I thought of at that moment was when I was in first grade and it was uh, September 11, 2001. And I asked my mom why the planes flew in their buildings. And I don't remember my mom's exact words, other than she said that there were bad people on those planes. It's the kind of explanation you give to kids in hopes that it's going to explain the situation without exposing them to too much of the trauma. And it's funny how those things stick. Even to this day, sometimes when I hear about violence or terrorism reported on news cycles, I give myself the same explanation. Those were just bad people. And every time I do, I feel like I'm always missing something in that explanation. So I'm sitting there, we're almost to Chamonix, and I'm trying to think, I'm explaining away 
the Paris attacks by just saying they were bad people, it met, left me feeling as confused as alone as it did when I heard from my, those words from my mother a decade ago. And so we get off the bus, and I tour around the town a little bit, and then we hop on a cable car, and it takes us all the way up top to the mountain. And we get on this observatory deck, and there's the beautiful Mont Blanc, and it's this large peak. It kind of looks like Paramount. And it looks so close, I feel like I can reach out and prick my finger right on the top of it. And then after that, I walk down this path, and my plan is to get to the glacier La Mer de Glace, which is this beautiful alpine glacier that runs just in the bottom of Mount Blanc. And what I heard about getting there was that the elevators were actually out of order that took us there, but I was hoping the path that I was on was going to get me there. And so I get to the end of this path, and all of a sudden, I, all I see is these ladders that are bolted to the cliffside, and there's these outcropping of cliffs and these like horizontal bars that get you from cliffside to cliffside. And I think part of me at that moment, I didn't feel disempowered because of the Paris attacks, but I felt like I needed to reaffirm my sense of beauty in the world. And I felt like getting to La Mer de Glace was my mission at that moment. And so not thinking about very much, especially not the safety of the situation, I just started just going down the ladders without any safety equipment. And uh, to make matters more interesting, there was a trio of European girls that were on the uh, tour with me, and so they decided to follow me down. God knows why. Um, I don't know if it was because they were as reckless as I was or if I gave up some reassuring courage, but I can assure you it was a classic case of boneheadedness and not any sort of courage. And so we're going down these ladders, and I get to the bottom of one of these very particular ladders, and most of them is kind of an easy step off into this kind of outcropping of rock, and then you go and you continue on to the next one. But this one's a little different. It's a bit of a jump down. And when you land on the rock, there's sand that covers the rock. And so I get down. And the first one, I jump and I land, and I'm OK. I was a little nervous because I was half expecting to slip or something like that. And then the next girl who comes down, I remember she was Scottish. And she gets to the bottom of the ladder, and she jumps. And when she lands, her feet slip right up from underneath her. And she starts falling down the cliff. And this is a drop of about like 300 feet. So it would be instant death. And so I reach out, and I grab her. And luckily for the both of us, because I definitely would get pulled along with her to a certain depth, was that there was enough space where she didn't, was not moving fast enough, and she just slipped and fell, and her feet were dangling off the end, but her body was fine. So they went back up after that, and I kept going because I came so far already. And I was remember thinking about while well, I was going down all these ladders, and then eventually this pile of rubble, and I was sprinting on this rubble, and there's rocks flying everywhere. How, how really dangerous the whole thing was. And I was thinking about how close we came to death. It's like death set this behind this curtain of safety, and we all think that we're like always safe all the time from it, and we could get in a car crash or cancer, or someone can enter a theater with an assault rifle and gun us down. The final death toll in Paris was 137 people. 90 of those people died in the Bataclan Theater, where gunmen entered with assault rifles and fired upon the crowd before reloading and firing again. They kicked bodies to see if anyone was awake, and then if they betrayed any sort of life, they would shoot them. And when we hear this story, I think the terrorists want us to be terrified. They want us to dwell on our vulnerability so that we react with fear. And when we hear about terrorism and danger and crime and violence, how do we react? We react with fear. We want to run away, afraid of the reminder how dangerous the world can be. 
On my last day of Geneva, I walked around the town and I was noticing everything a little bit more closely as one does while traveling alone. I remember lounging on the beach and I saw two lovers resting sweetly in each other's arms. I remember going to the park and two old men who had probably been friends for a long time were playing the game of giant chess and these children were swirling around the ice skating rink and there was a band playing beautiful romantic music. Everything refused to do anything but continue on as it was. And walking around the city, I felt this strange sense of empowerment because I chose to go through with my plans and I reaffirmed a sense of beauty I had for a world that was meant to be traveled, a world that was meant to be in wonder of, not feared. Sometimes I feel like the news wants to do nothing but remind us how terrible the world can be without offering any glimmer of hope. And if we define our experiences by the negative things we see, we're going to be in a very dark place. And we get those moments, it's important to remind ourselves what choices we have to make. The choice to acknowledge the terror, but to not let it define our experience. The choice to save the world because we love it so much, not because we hate it. And there is a uh, quote that I actually want to share with you quick. There is a man named Antoine Larius who lost his wife in the attack. And uh, if you have the chance, I think you should read the whole quote, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read part of it. Um, and it really shakes me in core every time I read it, and it really highlights a lot of this empowerment that I felt. On Friday night, you stole the love of my life, the mother of my son, but you'll not have my hate. You want me to be scared, to see my fellow citizens through suspicious eyes, to sacrifice my freedom for security, you have failed. I will not change. Next, Leslie Ty is shocked to learn about her mentor's misdeeds so many years after the fact. So my best friend Amelia and I have known each other since we were five years old. Um, at this point, I pretty much consider her my sister. Uh, we even joke that we share half a brain, and you never want to put us on the same team, like of any kind of guessing game. Uh, celebrity taboo in the 90s was like our jam, and you know she would just have to say, you know that guy with a thing, and I'd say, Tom Selleck, or whatever the answer was, and we'd get it right. We just would win every time. We're also the kind of friends who probably always felt a little bit like in each other's shadow, but for very different reasons. Um, Amelia was like fierce, like from age five. She was just fierce. She was the girl in second grade who could climb all the way to the top of the rope, to the, to the you know, top of the gym uh, in gym class um, and looked like really cute doing it. Uh, my dad likes to tell the story about one time she was over to play and we're playing in my room, and, and he could hear her say, let's play mud wrestling. And he was like, <laughs> he came in the room like, what is going on? Uh, so she was like eight years old, like going on 25, you know? Um, she was just so amazing and vibrant, and she was just, she was more beautiful, and she was more confident, and just like more everything in, in my eyes. Um, and I don't want to put words into her mouth, but, you know, looking back, I, I'm sure that there are I know that there are times when she felt less than me. 
I was always very driven um, in my artistic endeavors, um, and my parents really instilled in me this belief that I could do anything that I, I really set my mind to. And so I had that kind of confidence. And I was always friends with everybody. Um, like, I was always like the person in the middle. So the friends that didn't get along, I was friends with both of them. And Amelia's kind of strong will made her sometimes clash with people. And she likes to tell the story of when we were young and how she would, you know, because of her insecurity and her self-confidence, she would um, sometimes uh, tell big lies, basically, you know, to get people to like her. So she would look to me to back her up. And as she tells it, apparently one time, you know, she was like, isn't that right, Leslie? And I was like, Amelia, I'm not going to lie for you anymore. And I apparently crushed her. Um, but uh, I don't know, I guess I had, you know, certain ethical standards. I don't know, at like eight years old, eight, nine years old. Um, so, but, but I mean, we, we had really a strong bond, really, from early on. Now, in upper elementary and middle school, we went to different schools, and we kind of start to fell out of touch with each other, didn't see each other as much. But when we were in high school, um, I actually had applied and was going to a boarding school far away from Colorado, where we, where we lived. And we, we just kind of happened upon each other right before I was going to go, and um, this kind of favorite haunt of ours downtown, Colorado Springs, where we were from. And we just, we just like, I don't know why, we decided to exchange, you know, addresses and, and write letters. And we just, we, were writing, we would write these letters and we just remembered why we, you know, loved each other so much. And we just bonded again and we've been inseparable ever since, other than, of course, the many miles that, that um, uh, tear us apart. But we're, in terms of, she's like my sister. That's when she really became my sister. Um, you know, again, she was just, you know, I just, she was gorgeous, and she was so vibrant, and, you know, on the outside, all of the things that I wished that I could be. We ended up at separate colleges. Um, she was in Portland, and I was in Los Angeles, but her jun our junior year in college, she decided to take a chance, and she took a semester away and joined me, and we were roommates for the first time, which was awesome. Um, she decided even to apply to my school, which was USC. Just side note, I promise that my parents did not find my way into USC. <laughs> we are still paying for it to this day, trust me. Um, so, but she decided she wanted to apply. You know, I think she saw in me um, a very confident writer. I was studying screenwriting there. I was really, I felt really respected by my peers, um, and um, which, was, which was a little bit unusual. We were, that, that year, they used, they would, allow 24 people to come in every year, and this was the most they ever had of female writers um, in 1993 when I started there, and that was six out of 24. So, um, but I felt really good about myself. Um, so she had, she'd come to Los Angeles, she got an internship at a soap opera, um, just, you know, being a PA. She was actually, she is a fantastic actress. She is super talented. Doesn't necessarily, didn't always necessarily see that in herself, but she's super talented. Um, and she, you know, was always our actress for film projects that year and, and was fun to collaborate with her. And, um, you know, again, she was interested in USC, decided to apply and was come to all the, you know, the activities that she could come to with us, with, with my friends and roommates. I had this really, really fantastic mentor named Richard Krevelin. Krev, we call them for short. And um, he had been there since my freshman year. Um, he was kind of a, a younger professor, kind of a rising star in the writing program, and 
he had been so important to me. He had just really encouraged me and nurtured me and, you know, given me all this, um, this great attention and, you know, part of why I felt so confident. And, um, I mean, he, I, I mean, we've, I followed, you know, in, in, in talking with him and getting his advice after college. Um, I even felt, you know, so impacted by him that I brought him to work with my students years later when I was teaching screenwriting um, up here in, in, at Interlochen. Now, Amelia and I have had a few big blowouts over the years. Um, and as adults, and you know, as we got older, we started to realize, you know, as you do, that when you are angry, when you get really angry at somebody, it's really more about your own insecurities um, and your own issues. Um, but of course, at the time, as like 20-year-olds, I didn't quite understand everything that was going on. But, it was during this year, the semester, that we had one of our biggest fights. And it revolved around Krev. Um, she had wanted to, you know, meet with him to talk about maybe her portfolio. You know, she wanted to apply. She wanted to have a mentor like she saw that he was to me. And I just was so, I didn't understand. She made this plan to meet with him alone. And it, I just didn't understand the exclusivity of it. Like, why, I was like, why can't we just meet all together? Like, I think that's awesome. but. You know, but of course, now I know that a lot of that came from my own insecurity. You know, um, I've told many stories here before about, um, you know, I just didn't, I didn't date in high school. I didn't date in college. Um, I was a virgin still all through college. So this, this part of me, I was really not, that my confidence was not in how I looked. Um, it was in my abilities, but not in how I looked. And you know, to be honest, there was this little bit of me that was jealous, you know. Um, Amelia was everything I wanted to look like. She got attention. Um, and, you know, I was like, she had this card that she could play that I couldn't play. And I just, I don't know, again, that's where that stemmed from. But at the time, I was just furious. I just thought, like, why are you being such a bitch? Why are you going to try to, you're trying to take my mentor away from me. Like, this person, you wouldn't even know this person without me. So I was just... I was just really angry and I couldn't even tell her why and you know she left to go to the meeting and I was just I remember sitting on the steps of our duplex just like furious and you know she came back later and we didn't talk um, and we just never talked about it we just never talked about it and we just kind of let it go again she's my sister so we got over it but we never spoke about it and she didn't end up getting into USC she went back to Portland and finished her degree there and you know, had a great, you know, great success. I got to go see her um, uh, in her, like, senior showcase, and um, she moved back to Los Angeles after she graduated, and we remained roommates for a long time until she met the love of her life, and I was the babe of honor at her wedding years later, and of course, she came up here for my wedding and was an important part of that, and it wasn't until just a few months ago or earlier this year that, um, this school year, I should say, that the story of that night came back and I, I kind of really understood what had happened. It was actually through a, through a Facebook thread conversation that another friend, another college friend of ours had posted um, as you know, the Me Too movement was spreading across the internet. And I came to the realization and kind of face to face with the fact that this man who I had admired greatly and had been so important to nurturing me as a writer was a sexual predator. And I mean, I, I, looking back now, it's like unbelievable to me. I mean, but we didn't even have that language at the time. 
You know, this is 1995. You know, I mean, I think about how many movies had I seen by that point where, like, you know, the, the college co-ed, like, dating the professor was romanticized, right? And how many movies were, like, the young woman and the older man was romanticized? I had even romanticized that. And I just, at the time, I, I, I said, crazy to think now, but at the time I just couldn't even fathom that she had been in a place where she had not wanted that at all, but that had been obviously what he wanted. And I just can't imagine her coming back to our bedroom, you know, and me probably giving her the silent treatment and just how devastated she must have felt. The details of the encounter don't really, that's not kind of the point, they don't really matter. Um, the point was the fact that Amelia had gone to meet a man who, you know, I had told her and that she believed was a genuine and caring and nurturing person only to be met with just another asshole that just reinforced this notion that her only worth was her body. He wasn't interested in her as an artist, just as a piece of ass. And the real shocker, of course, was that she had never told me about it. And as this is kind of all unfolding, you know, I, I, I told her, I am so sorry. I didn't even know that's what happened. And she said, of course you didn't. I didn't want to tell you. I didn't want to ruin your relationship with him. I didn't, you know, in this mentor that you had. And I didn't want to ruin our friendship or, or do anything that could drive a wedge between us. That's the thing that like breaks my heart. And again, it's so hard to imagine now, having 43 <laughs> years of experience in my life, that, but how small and unworthy we obviously both felt and how so much of our confidence was wrapped up in the opinion of a man. So obviously, of course, again, our, our friendship was unbreakable. And, um, when I contacted her, actually, to, to say, would it be okay for me to tell the story because I didn't want to, you know, say anything that she wasn't okay with, and she told me, I trust you implicitly. And even as I grapple with the idea that someone that, that you admire and love and that has done so much good can also have done horrible, horrible things, and as we move forward into this time where we're just meaningfully chipping away at the patriarchy, just like until it all finally comes tumbling down, I, take, I, I just take solace in the notion that experiences help to shape us and they can make us resilient and they can make us strong. And that karma is a bitch. Because Krev eventually got fired from USC a um, few years later after I had graduated uh, for reasons that weren't really ever talked about. But looking back and piecing together that that happened around the same time that his first marriage dissolved as well and went bad, that it would probably had to do with another student, students, you know, whether it was a fair, whether it was an assault, but of course, at that time, it was not brought out to the open. It was just swept under the rug. But, you know, now we know. I'm glad that she finally told the story that she finally felt like she could. And 
Amelia is still one of the fiercest ladies that I know. In fact, she established her own nonprofit in Denver that teaches self-defense. They do that um, kind where the male trainers wear full padded bodysuits. I don't know if you've seen this. It's amazing, by the way, I have taken, I have taken the class. Um, so the idea is that they train you like in an adrenalized state to actually do the full like knee to the groin and like elbow to the you know, face and like hammer kick to the head so that if a situation happens, you just, it's muscle memory. So she has made her life work about empowering people of all genders that they are worth defending and that their bodies are to be respected. And she has two daughters that are just amazing, um, my nieces. Her eldest is a little bit like me. She's a little quieter, always got her nose stuck in a book and just creating all these stories. And her youngest, this intense little fireball is like the spitting image of little Amelia. She is fierce and strong-willed and no doubt can climb to the top of the gym rope. <laughs> And I know that they fight sometimes because they're sisters, but I know that they will always trust each other. And I know that we're going to teach them that they are more than just an opinion from a man. Thank you. <laughs> In our last story, Laura Gornicki shocks the crowd after entering an arm wrestling tournament on a whim. We were enjoying our day at the Ohio Lesbian Festival. <laughs> My fiance Michelle and I had nothing to worry about. It was a glorious vacation day. There was just a light mist threatening to become rain, and we were lazing under the awning of this tiny camper we have. We're fishing lunch out of coolers. We're reading to each other, um, debating about whether or not we should take a nap or take a stroll around the music festival. When Michelle, while perusing the festival brochure, said, you should totally enter the arm wrestling festival tournament. Though very flattered by her belief in me, I was hesitant. Michelle, this is kind of a big deal. This is a lesbian festival, okay? <laughs> Have you seen the women here? They are ripped, they're tattooed, they're tough. And, and also, some of them aren't even women. I could be arm wrestling against trans men on testosterone. <laughs> but her belief in me didn't waver. You're really strong, you should do it. And I am pretty strong. I'd arm wrestled against varsity football players in high school, big farm boys, and I'd won. But that was over 25 years ago, and I was 60 pounds lighter at the time. I played sports. I could bench press my own body weight. I had a lot less muscle now, and also, um, back then, it was just easier for me to compete. I, was a lot, I had a lot more bravery. <sighs> well, come on, Laura, let's just walk over there. We'll check it out. And if you're not comfortable doing it, we'll just watch. So I agreed to that. And on the walk over, my sweaty palms were, my sweaty palm was clutching hers. And I said, I am strong, aren't I? <laughs> do you really think that I should do it? But those women are going to be badass. 
Do you think I could get hurt? Don't people break their arms sometimes, arm wrestling? Do you think that they'll be nice? Um, I don't even know how to arm wrestle. Are you allowed to turn your wrist? Um, what if it rains? Do you think they'll cancel it? <laughs> Michelle, they could have already had the sign up for it ahead of time. At this time, we approached women in an open field, standing in a cluster. I could barely see into the huddle that they had formed until I could see in, and I saw it. I saw this glorious, frightening, um, official arm wrestling table, and it had red pads on it, had these strange metal bars sticking out of it. And there were also, standing next to the arm wrestling table, there were two women in official black and white striped referee uniforms. The women were shouting out solicitations to draw participants. Senior division left, senior division right, lightweight left, lightweight right, open division left and right, come on over. I had to stand back and watch the frenetic activity for a minute and figure out what I was going, what was going on before I decided if I would commit to this. I examined the women who ventured forward to sign their names on the list. I watched the women practice at the table and I decided I would go for it. It was hard on my voice. It was hard for my voice to come out, but I forced myself to say, excuse me, as I fought through the impenetrable crowd into the middle, smiling and doing my very best to appear very casual and cool. I said, I'd like to sign up for the women's open right, please. And I put my name down. And then was the wait. I had to wait about 45 minutes for my name to be called as there were many people competing in the different divisions and that was excruciating. And I anxiously stood in the humidity, furtively smelling my armpits occasionally <laughs> and just wanting to get this thing over with. My name was called and I made my way through the crowd. It was even more difficult than it had been to initially when I put my name down on the list because everybody was crammed in and watching this. When I got there, I found the women were nice, and they reviewed the rules. They told us everything we needed to do, and our arms were on the little red pads. And one of the officials put both hands on top of our hands, and then she said, ready, go, and within a third of a second, I slammed her arm down on the table. <laughs> Thank you. That's how I felt. I think I was more surprised than the crowd was. I was more surprised by my opponent. And inside, I'm thinking, oh my god, yes, yes, that was easy. That was easy. <laughs> she congratulated me. And trying to act nonchalant, I, with a sm slight smile, just calmly resumed my place at the back of the group, while internally, internally, I am jumping. My fists are in the air, and I'm screaming to myself. <laughs> I had just won an official arm wrestling match at the Ohio Lesbian Festival. <laughs> and I was feeling good. <sighs> Thank you. I could wait for another match with a little less apprehension at this point. What followed was interesting. My competitors and I were approached by random people and we were asked questions. They were seeking information to inform their betting. Then my name was called for the second round, and it was a bit easier to make it through the crowd. This competitor looked tough, and there were a whole bunch of people cheering for her. 
nobody knew me. Her grip was menacing. As we squared up our hands in preparation, oh damn, she was strong. But I won again. <laughs> Thank you. And unbeknownst to me at the time, I had just beat the 2017 Ohio Lesbian Festival arm wrestling champion. <laughs> and it might have taken me a second. The sharks this time came over and they were gathering intel to place their bets. My out of shape self fielded very amusing questions. Am I a gym owner or a trainer? No, I'm a teacher. No, I'm not a gym teacher. <laughs> Lift? Lift weights? Like, I don't know, two or three times a year, maybe? No official arm wrestling experience, but I did um, arm wrestle kids in plant and soil science class for a semester in high school. They tried in vain to solicit different answers, and I just shrugged. I told them, believe me, I too am surprised, and, and it must just be luck. I don't remember how many rounds followed, but probably three, and I didn't have to fight through the crowd those last rounds. A path would be cleared and supporters were cheering for me. <laughs> they would slap my hand as I made my way to the table, and I remembered cheering for others, laughing, talking freely to strangers, and the sharks, they came around again, but this time they had no questions for me. They, dismayed, told me, bets are off, nobody's betting against you. This, this was a state of euphoria for me. It was like I had stepped back in time 25 years and I'd hit a ball over a fence in a high school softball game or I'd served two aces to help my team win a volleyball game. Then my joy was interrupted. Amber and Laura, final round for the women's open right. Then raucous cheering. I had made it to the final round the sharks might have had confidence in me, but I didn't. I'd been watching anxiously as this woman, Amber, seemingly a former Olympic gymnast or something, had slapped arm after arm down on the table. She was tough. She was solid muscle. She was easily 15 or 20 years my junior. And I thought, oh, I don't know why I'm doing this. She had steely determination and grimaced. She didn't smile as she competed. She had won the lightweight division easily. We were the only two women who had swiftly beaten all of our opponents. The match was fast, like all the previous matches had been for both of these competitors. It was probably a half a second to one second long. There's actually a picture of the moment of victory. It's just a snapshot in time of the faces of those spectators, and they were contorted, and jaws were dropped, and expressions of awe. There were fists in the air. The back of my head can be seen, but Amber, her face is clear. She's not steely-faced this time. She's smiling. Her head is down, her shoulders down and her arm is down underneath mine. And standing here before you is the 2018 Ohio Lesbian Festival Arm Wrestling Tournament Champion. <laughs> Aww, thank you. 
Aw. Thanks, I'm having the good feels come back all over again. Um, so I got this cheesy medal, and I was offered a jello shot by strangers and a beer, and, and there was a double freaking rainbow in the sky over the lesbian festival. And I can't make this shit up, I'm serious. And I walked around proudly sporting this medal around my neck for the rest of the day and the night, and strangers approached me, and they, they wanted to feel my bicep and my forearm. <laughs> These are lesbians. And they wanted to arm wrestle me after the tournament was over. I found all of the kindness, all of this awe, very flattering. And on a beer runoff festival grounds, I frenetically texted pictures to my friends and my family, and they texted back congratulations and funny emojis. And I called my biggest high school sports fan, my dad. Though typically not one to chat on the phone, he wanted to know every detail, and he told me about how both he and my grandfather had arm wrestled decades ago in bars all over the Flint and Detroit area. <laughs> I had no idea this was a family legacy that I was a part of. <laughs> I knew, I knew my dad is proud of me, was proud of me, always has been proud of me, but something happened with him that night that I hadn't felt in a long time. He was so full of pride, I could tell. And I hadn't felt that, I hadn't felt that in years. And it was good. And these positive after effects continued in the months that followed. I beat my teenage son, my friends, <laughs> my brother-in-law. And I won both of the subsequent tournaments I entered. But the best post-festival moment occurred in the most unlikely of places at work, in a public high school. A staff meeting was put on pause after they'd heard about my escapades. <laughs> and I battled in my very toughest match of all of them. My opponent and I were at a standstill for several seconds. Then, with every ounce of energy I had, I slowly beat my bodybuilding male coworker in front of several colleagues. Red-faced after the defeat, he muttered, this does not leave this room. <laughs> um, yeah, I was not gonna leave that one in the room. <laughs> I'm grateful for my decision to go out on a limb, to step up to the plate, to get into the game regardless of fear. And the story doesn't end here. I'm looking forward to defending my title at the 2019 Ohio Lesbian Festival Arm Wrestling Tournament. Thank you. So as I mentioned previously, Taylor Kramer is here to help us talk about the theme for the April hearsay, which is SOS. SOS, as in Save Our Souls, not Secretary of State, though I'm sure lots of folks have dreadful stories about their getting their driver's license. If there were a story in it, I'd happily talk about how I used to take terrific driver's license photos to the point that it was freaky how good they are, and now suddenly every time I sit to take that photo, I look like a linebacker. Although this did begin once I moved to Michigan, so maybe it's not me. Anyway, back on track. SOS, Save Our Souls. Taylor Kramer is here. Hey, Taylor. Hey, how's it going? 
Good. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming here. I'm happy that you get to see our redesigned studio. <laughs> yes, it looks much different than last time. Yeah, it was in shambles the last time. <laughs> Makeshift tables and chairs. Um, okay, so you are the creator of the Cold Shower podcast and the host. And on the Cold Shower podcast description um, on iTunes, it says, much like a cold shower can be uncomfortable, so too can seeking content outside of one's usual scope. However, the benefits can be immense. The p this podcast is dedicated to the mission of providing people with original, quality, helpful, and challenging content in the hopes of increasing each listener's personal growth. So I've got to ask, how do you achieve this mission, and what was the spark for creating the podcast in the first place? Yeah, so I'll go ahead and begin with, I guess, the spark. Um, it was probably three or four years ago as there was the whole 2015-2016 uh, election cycle taking place, and there was a lot of division and dissent among people. And it started to kind of take its toll on me. And so I decided I could either get angry, like it seemed like everybody else was, um, or I could try to combat some of that division uh, with positive content or challenging content, something to make people think a little bit. And what I, what I found out was that in society today, it seems like it's easier and easier to be able to choose comfort or choose discomfort. And what I mean by that is in the sense that we're no longer required as people to band together against wild animals. We don't necessarily have to walk down the street uh, to a neighbor to get a cup of flour. There um, is a choice that we have, and, and that's to choose growth or to remain stagnant. And so we can entertain the same ideas and opinions our whole lives, or we can explore the inner workings of other people. So essentially the goal of my podcast is to provide content that people can benefit from. I want to do that through presenting new ideas that can get them to either agree or disagree. That part really doesn't matter to me. Um, I want to also help elicit some type of response from listeners. So to give them the chance to maybe evaluate themselves. And I do think that if people are given the chance or taking responsibility uh, to do that, then maybe we will be in a better position to create lasting connections with other people um, and hopefully even make the world a better place. And that is the, the whole goal and something that I'm still always working on. Okay. Yeah, that's, it's really fascinating to watch what this country has become as far as divisiveness. At the beginning of all my open mics, I actually started off with the most important thing, no politicking. <laughs> um, I think just because, like, ooh, the, 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 I have a microphone. What am I going to say? <laughs> and it's probably irresistible to just start complaining loudly to the people. Uh, but I'm really firm about that. At the last one, I actually s got up and said, you know, whether you love politics, whether you hate politics, we don't care. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the thing is, we do care, but not at that moment. Like, this is a place to push it to the side. So for you, it's this uh, space almost to dig, to dive in, but not to dive into the politics part, but the issues. Yeah, definitely. And so <clears throat> you'll have to excuse me. I'm battling a cold, and then uh -oh. I aggravated my voice by yelling at the TV during the Michigan State game this past weekend. So I'm well, still happy shouts, right? Yes. Happy shouts at the end for sure. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I, I try um, to, to welcome some of those political conversations that inevitably make their way into the podcast. But at the same time, I want people to understand that um, th it's not meant to just showcase people's opinions or ideas in that way. Um, it's more meant to just provide an opportunity for the listeners to really figure out whether they're on the right track with what they're thinking or if maybe they should start to be open to some other things. But yes, the politics is kind of inevitable uh, when you're talking 
uh, to people in long form conversation, I think. Uh, so we, there is space for it, but at the same time, we try not to like block anybody off either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually don't really have a problem with someone who disagrees with me politically so long as they can support their position. I mean, if we're going there, you know, I don't walk around demanding that people explain themselves generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a conversation about, you know, a contentious issue, I mean, we all are coming from different experiences. And I think that's actually the thing that gets forgotten is that, you know, my life up to this point does not mirror your life up to this point or anyone else's. And so I think that we are always thinking that people see the world exactly how we do. So it's like, how do you think that way? Well, there's an explanation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that was something that actually just on one of my most recent episodes, someone framed it in such a way that I hadn't really thought about before, but I kind of knew it was inside me. And and that's the truth uh, to what people think. And so there's that fine balance between saying, I don't want everybody to agree with me or I don't need everybody to agree with me. But at the same time, we all have things that we think are correct and we want people to align with that. Um, But the issue is when we don't allow other people to challenge our thinking because that then that says that we really don't care about the truth. The truth, we can show that we care about that if we're open to people challenging what we think. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I think that's a lot of what comes through in the storytelling show, you know, at Hearsay, where, I mean, that's where everyone's truth is, is in their story. And that's where we get to see how people are, how they are. I believe it was actually on your podcast that I was a guest on not too long ago where I mentioned that my cousin who produces a show had a psychiatrist come up to him at the end of one of his shows and said ordinarily you have to talk to someone for years to get to know them at the level that you get to know them by listening to a 10-minute story on stage and it's just it's really fascinating I mean at the March Shock and Awe show uh, I mean just Everyone was so engaged in everyone's stories where, you know, we were hoping that you got a rise out of (laughs) uh, your mom by running away. And everyone was so into Laura's victory in these uh, these progressive (laughs) arm wrestling matches. And like we just get so attached to the storyteller, even though it may just be that you've never even met that person before. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that is for sure. And that's something that since I've been to. Uh, the storytelling events, both as a person telling a story, but also someone sitting in the crowd. It's uh, interesting to kind of draw energy from other people. And so as I was um, up there telling my story, there's definitely a different energy to that. Um, You're kind of feeding off the laughs of the crowd, um, maybe even some facial expressions if you're looking out into the crowd. And then as a listener, um, you can really get a sense of the larger crowd and how they're hoping the same thing that you're hoping. And so you're kind of all in this together as you're help move, help, helping move the story along, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It, in a way, it is a form of SOS where it's right. like, it, there's a lifeline between um, the giver and then the receiver, uh, who is the, the audience. So on your podcast, like who do you think was potentially one of the most life changing guests who you had? Oh, man. I know that you've had a lot of guests. Yeah, <laughs> and so I'm trying to, like, think through as many of them as I can. Um, I think, for me, it's always a fine line between, um, obviously, there's the major story. So I inter- I was able to interview my uncle who survived a grizzly bear attack. 
And wow. so that is something that you're just never really going to meet anyone else who has survived a grizzly bear attack or anybody at all. And why is he not on the lineup for the April SOS show? But, That's a good question. But do he, go on. Yes, he lives in Texas, but he's <laughs> oh. actually um, going to have a home up here soon. So okay. eventually maybe you he will. You send him my way. Yes, absolutely. He, yeah, that story is going to trump <laughs> most other stories. Um, and so that one always sticks out to me. But then on the same token, I have... Uh, other stories just like when I got a chance to interview my grandpa and so there were just things that I had always kind of wanted to ask him and now those aren't large-scale life world changing uh, things that he's sharing but they they did affect me uh, greatly and then I always just think to uh, the most recent episodes that come to mind so someone who's experienced great uh, amounts of pain and grief through losing a, a husband um, and then even just the most recent one that I've had, which was um, a pastor, and then Beth Milligan, who's a, another a local journalist here too, um, and just the wisdom that they shared and how they kind of approach difficult conversations. So basically, I can never decide which mm -hmm. one. So everyone should listen to every episode and decide for themselves. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Um, how long have you been doing that? I am coming up on my one-year anniversary okay. for starting that. So I... I try to set out to do about one a week but oh, it's wow. a little less than that uh so i think right now as i'm approaching the one year we're at like 44 45 episodes wow that's impressive yeah um and did you start it because you're relatively new to the area did you start it here yeah so i had lived further up north in sheboygan michigan which is uh, just east of the mackinac bridge and i had the idea for a podcast but my excuse was that there just wouldn't be enough people locally that I could interview. I mean, Sheboygan's a very small community. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting people up there, but I didn't really know anybody up there either. Mm -hmm. And then once we moved to the Traverse City area, I was like, there is a lot going on, especially in comparison to Sheboygan. I was like, Taylor, there's no more excuses. You have to start this. Uh, and then it's just kind of snowballed. As I meet one person, they refer me to somebody else, and you did a great job of that, um, as I've been able to reach out to multiple people that you recommended too. Excellent. Yeah, and it's all through the hearsay channel. Like, I've just met so many cool people just from them taking yeah. the stage. <laughs> yep, exactly. So, um, so, have you ever had to be rescued? I have. And uh, this is another story that involves my mom. And so, I hope I'm not doing uh, her an injustice. She truly is next to my wife, is my other favorite person on the planet. And so, uh, she is a, is a great lady. But there was uh, another instance where... I had to be rescued. It was her fault, but then she did the rescuing. So <laughs> what happened was um, she asked me uh, to take out the garbage. I think at this time I was about seven or eight years old. And we kept our trash on top of the big chest freezer in the garage to keep it away from the dogs or whatever. So she asked me to go out there, grab the trash, and then take it to the end of the road, which is no big deal. I went out there, and we had a box that contained our new front door in it it had not yet been installed and I was trying to grab the trash as it was being pinned by the heavy box and I couldn't move it I was only seven or eight and so I went back inside and I just said mom the box with the door in it is pinning the trash I can't grab it she said no your dad uh, took that out he installed that already not going and looking at the front door that <laughs> to see that it hadn't been installed I was like no that it's not an empty box there's something very heavy in there and I can't move the trash and she said, go back out there and, and, and get it unstuck. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went back and I pulled it again as the door toppled over me. And it actually pinned me to the garage floor. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I, was, uh, I wasn't injured or anything, but I definitely could not move. Mm -hmm. So it was pinning my legs down. 
Um, and I was just screaming at the top of my lungs, trying to get my mom to come out and lift the door. And there was no response. She was not coming out to rescue me. Was she back on uh, the internet? <laughs> no, this time she was listening to music. Oh, and so, okay. yep. So she had her CDs playing, uh, that were louder than my voice. Oh my gosh. And so I'm yelling and yelling and yelling and she's not coming. And I think, uh, this may have only been a matter of a couple minutes, but it seemed like a lot longer. So eventually, as I continued to scream, it was one of those CD changers. So it was like a three-disc CD player. As it was switching to the next disc, um, she heard my little voice, ran out, uh, lifted the door off me with no problem, and rescued me. And I was quite upset with her uh, <laughs> after that, but she apologized. And I think she ended up taking the trash out for me that day, too. Excellent. Yeah. Also, there seems to be a throughway in <laughs> the story that you told on stage and this 90s technology yes. seems to play a prominent role. <laughs> yeah, for some reason. Uh, and I was like pretty glad that that CD eventually changed uh, over so that she could hear me yelling. Mm -hmm. Again, I imagine that it was probably 12 songs that I was laying on the garage floor, but in reality it might have only been like two. Yeah. <laughs> Since it was the 90s, do you think it was Ace of Bass that was playing? I don't even <laughs> remember. I tried any t any music she played. I just tried to block it out. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah the 90s were a mixed bag. Right. <laughs> like everyone was like way too poppy or way too sad. Yep, yep. I still don't really like my mom's music choices. Yeah. Um, I can put up with them, but yeah, at that time, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually, my uh, stories of being rescued... Uh, pretty much involved it, they weren't just me being rescued but like it was grand scale something happening um like uh we had to land in crash position in a an airplane once we were going from wow. mexico city to dallas and as we were taking off um i guess like we just we heard a loud ex a loud noise and then the whole plane shook and then we just kept going so we we're like oh, i guess that wasn't really anything but it turned out the uh the the they had hit a light post <laughs> and okay. exploded a landing tire <laughs> so we were greeted in dallas by you know emergency vehicles and it, it was it was fine it was one of those things I, I tend to not freak out when there's actually a reason to freak out i tend to freak out when everything's totally fine yeah you know? <laughs> yeah you can kind of surprise yourself sometimes did the flight attendants even get a chance to explain like protocol yet Oh yeah, no. I mean, we we went all the way from Mexico City to Dallas, so like we were in the air, just oh, okay. wondering, like, hey, you know, th wow. this will be interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I remember actually, I was uh, sitting next to my sister, and I was going like full Statler and Waldorf on the uh, the emergency uh, explanation yep. sheet. You know, I was just cracking jokes. I don't know what my problem is. <laughs> it's like, right. Like something terrible is happening. It's hilarious. Yeah, that <laughs> might be a better reaction than just like panicking and not being able to even move. That's true, but I do panic over the littlest things. Oh, right. <laughs> so I just moderate. I need I need balance in my panic yeah. life, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then the other time, um, I was stuck in the subway tunnel in Chicago for two and a half hours uh, because there was a malfunction and for some reason all the trains just kept going further into the tunnel instead of just letting us out and i actually don't love <laughs> being underground so that was an interesting exercise in like how calm am i right <laughs> and you're in a i mean it's not like a tight tight space but you still know that there's earth above you when there probably shouldn't be right yeah <laughs> exactly. i don't i'm not a big fan of tunnels yeah 
know how to use. Um, but uh, actually, I told that story um, at the summer reruns episode that was recorded at Interlochen, um, and it ran on Interlochen Public Radio. Oh, okay. um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story because I actually do have a history of panic disorder. Um, but again, like panic over nothing. Yeah. Like, oh, it's hot in here. Ah! Right. <laughs> you know? But like, oh, something actually bad is happening. I'm cool. Yeah, large scale stuff. You rise to the occasion. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> Hey, that's all right, though. <laughs> Have you ever rescued somebody yourself? So I was trying to think about a time where I rescued someone. I wish that it had been in a plane crash or um, from a subway <laughs> car. But no, I've never really rescued anyone that I can remember. But I did rescue something. I rescued an animal. Oh. Um, and, and this is a true story. And without exaggerating, this is how it went. Um, my wife and I, my girlfriend at the time... Uh, would go to the animal shelter in college and just look at the dogs that we couldn't get because we lived in college housing. Um, Is that a form of taunting? <laughs> maybe, yeah. It, I I always just wanted to go there and kind of say, like, well, someday when you get your own place, you can have a dog again. Yeah. Um, so we went there, and as we were walking in, I think that this dog that had just been adopted ran out of the lobby, oh. out into the property that the animal shelter was on. And it was running all over the place. Why it was not leashed when it was adopted, I don't know. But the lady that had just adopted the dog came running out, yelling at it. Obviously, no control over a new dog that has no idea what's going on. And it was just sprinting in circles. I imagine just being ecstatic about being out uh, in the grass again. And it was on a very busy road. And so I was thinking, this dog probably isn't aware that you're supposed to stay away from the road. I don't know how well trained it is. So I'm going to go stand by the road and try to slow down any cars in case this dog goes towards the road. Well, I think that was actually a bad idea because then the dog wanted to come to me. Oh. And so he is sprinting towards me as I'm out like with one hand up trying to stop the incoming traffic that was coming at like 55 miles an hour. And the car was not slowing down that was coming. So I was in the road as the dog is sprinting towards me, and I had a decision to make of whether, like, do I keep trying to slow this car down and risk getting hit myself or go towards the dog? So I decided to go towards the dog as the car wasn't slowing down. And it ran by me at the same time and brushed my leg and lunged out into the street right as the car was coming. And so I channeled some type of superpower and reached out after it, grabbed it by its hind leg in midair, and drug it out of the way of the car. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a very, very close call. And I think the worst part of that is that there was a long distance of where that car should have seen me <laughs> and slowed down and was not paying attention. So I have no idea what the driver was doing, but it did not hit a dog that day. Wow. Or you. <laughs> right. Or me. Yeah. I decided wow. to get out of the way of that one. So. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty heroic. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Yeah. And and my girlfriend was there to see it happen, too, so that was pretty cool. That was the day she knew she'd marry you? I think it must have been, <laughs> yeah. She knew that if there was any puppies jumping in the street that I could save them, so. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, I have no stories of rescuing anyone. I've never been so fortunate. I also don't know that I would have that superpower moment. <laughs> I, I don't know that we think we do until, until you kind of, yeah, until you kind of have to. Yeah. Um, so how do you save yourself, Taylor? Like, What's your self-care regimen? Yeah, so for me, in order to kind of take care of myself, um, I think there's a lot of, to save ourselves, sometimes we have to really engage in a lot of prevention, almost self-sabotage. 
save ourselves from that. So what I really rely on is actually a pretty strict schedule. I'm someone that has to make sure that they're getting like the proper amount of sleep. I have to try to go to bed at the same time. If I'm like an hour late to bed, sometimes then I can't fall asleep and um, it kind of throws my whole next day off. I really have been trying to watch what I eat and, uh, and not in the sense of eating healthy necessarily, but just at least understanding that if I'm eating like shit, then that's going to make me feel a certain way mm-hmm. and not just leaving it a guessing game. Um, so does that mean you're not doing the ice cream well, <laughs> anymore? Well, that, that um, I had to put on hold because I was going on vacation and I wanted to look somewhat decent for my wife on vacation. <laughs> and, and now that we're back, I mean, summer's coming, but um, my ice cream intake with the warmer months is definitely going to take an uptick for yeah. sure. Actually, yeah. I should probably uh, clarify for the people who don't follow you on Instagram yeah. <laughs> that yeah. what we're talking about is that uh, Taylor had a... a you got an Instagram series, I believe it was called "What's on My Ice Cream." Yep, yep. <laughs> what was uh, what was the best combination, and what was the worst combination? Oh, I'm trying to think here. I believe I did three episodes. Oh, that's it. Yes, I only did three, oh, and then right. my vacation like came major up. Major ice cream eater. No, well, I am a major ice cream eater. I only filmed three of those instances. <laughs> okay. um, but I think the first one was where Little Debbie's, and I call them Little Debras, just to be a little different, <laughs> came out with a turtle brownie and I'd never seen it before Mm -hmm. and I decided to buy a package of those and what I did was a combination of just vanilla ice cream so that we're not using a flavor of ice cream that's too wild and is going to cover up the flavor of the little Debra's Um, (laughs) and I warmed those up in the microwave those turtle brownies and then added them to the to the vanilla ice cream and I was really surprised little Debbie's came out with a solid product and it paired really well with just a regular French French vanilla ice cream. I I think that was honestly the best one. I know it's not like super creative, but that was my favorite. And then I think the worst one is where I tried to make an ice cream sandwich out of kind of a discreet flavor of Pop-Tart. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't remember what flavor it was. I hadn't seen it before. And sometimes brands like Pop-Tart maybe venture a little bit too far. They try to be too original. Mm-hmm. And that was a c- case where that happened and it was not a, not delicious at no. all. No. no. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just got to stick with the classics. <laughs> yeah, that's my thinking too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I totally interrupted you to talk about ice cream. Um so uh, now I feel bad that I don't have ice cream for all the people who are in the studio <laughs> right now. <laughs> right. We'll we'll plan a what's in my ice cream video. I've been hoping to get some special guests on with me too. So, um I can have a sign-up sheet ready. I was about to say, where is the sign-up right. sheet? Right, I'll get I'll get one of those emailed out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a huge ice cream eater. I'm hmm. just not a huge sweets person. I'm more I'm more salty, um, okay. which I think fits my personality <laughs> to say I'm salty. Uh, but um, yeah, I don't know. Just but like an ice cream experiment. Yeah, like that sounds amazing. Yes, it, it, it is, and you learn a lot. Yeah. I think that's my excuse anyway. Excellent. So, okay. So in addition to eating well, aside from your adventures in ice cream, uh, what, how will, what else is your self care? Um, another big one is just kind of, I guess I would say mental stimulation. And so trying to make sure that I'm reading or I'm listening to different podcasts or even just hanging out with people that I think I can learn something from. I feel like we probably all have those relationships where, yeah, people are a good time, but they're not, maybe not contributing to bettering you as a person. And so we want to make sure that, or at least I do, that I'm spending time with quality people who are going to challenge me in conversation and stuff like that. And I found that that wasn't always something that I wanted to do in terms of reading or hanging out with quality people. 
Um, and since I've made that a priority, now I kind of get that little feeling of guilt if I'm not doing that over the course of a couple of days. And I think it's probably the same thing. I know that you like to go to the gym too, mm-hmm. where it's like once you build up that habit, make it a part of your life, that guilt is almost a good thing because you can use that to propel you to go tomorrow when when you should have gone today and so that's definitely something too where I just feel like I have to make sure that I'm reading doing something that's going to better myself otherwise I just feel like stagnant like I'm not you know becoming a a different person becoming a better person the next day because that's also a, a thing that I think I really try to do with myself is making sure that I'm not the same person week to week or month to month I want to try to be a little bit better mm-hmm. yeah I actually uh I like to do jigsaw puzzles uh in the winter I like that's my yeah my uh it's just it's so relaxing yeah I'm mm-hmm. I'm terrible at puzzles mm-hmm. I, I'm <laughs> I'm not crazy about them I can just like stare and literally have no clue how they're supposed to be put together Never. but I've always <laughs> had this dream that I want to do like a 5,000 piece puzzle and frame it uh-huh. and leave out one piece just Ooh. to be like super ironic <laughs> and that Taylor hates to do puzzles so much that he didn't put this last piece in but I, I doubt that I'll ever do the 4,999 pieces right. before that <laughs> yeah no I have a t- I, there are some puzzles where they just if it looks hard I don't want to do it right um I like the uh, I call them the ye oldie puzzles where it's like like quaint little small town scenes mm-hmm. where there's pumpkins there's always pumpkins in the puzzles I buy for some reason okay yeah <laughs> um yeah that and um I like to take baths even though like every time i take a bath it's like in my head that i'm sitting you know like that people say like you're basically soaking in your own filth <laughs> yeah yeah but for that moment like i just really like epsom salt so i don't okay. care and i i love a fireplace fire i have a wood burning fireplace in my house but i would say that it is not as relaxing as i wanted it to be because that requires constant care you yeah know? <laughs> yeah that's true it's like this isn't fun i have to get up every five seconds right and and then you want to have a uh a fire going while you're in the bath, maybe. Yes. And that's uncomfortable. You keep getting out to <laughs> poke the fire <laughs> when you're trying to take a bath. And then I keep accidentally throwing jigsaw pieces into the fire. Yep. And then <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what I would do with them. <laughs> yeah. It's all a mess. <laughs> so, um, so people who want to find your podcast, where do they go? Yeah. So right now we're on iTunes and Spotify. You can just search the Cold Shower Podcast. Um, I also have a website that I post uh, those episodes to. It's Cold Shower Goods, so Cold Shower and then G-O-O-D-S dot com. Um, but I would say just iTunes or Spotify is probably the easiest place to find me. Awesome. Well, check him out, and uh, thanks for coming to the studio today. It was uh, nice to talk to you. Yeah, this was a blast. Thanks for having me. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. And another thanks to our in-studio guest, Taylor Kramer. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in April when our theme is SOS. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 